What's going on? And welcome to a brand new episode of the Ocho and Ortiz Disney podcast. I am flying solo on this episode, and I do apologize for not having a new episode in a couple of weeks. I'll get into that in just a sec. On this episode, I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm going to be doing a top 10 list. So if you like top 10 lists, this is the episode for you. Without any further ado, let's get this thing started. That's right, everybody. It is a brand new episode of the Ocho and Ortiz Disney podcast. Although really on this episode, it's just the Ocho Disney podcast. Ortiz is not here. And like I said, I do apologize for not doing an episode for the past couple of weeks. But yeah, I had I had a family emergency that I was dealing with. So I hadn't really been in a recording mood the past couple of weeks. So apologies we were planning on hitting the ground running and getting back into the groove of things after a couple months hiatus. And then, yeah, I just got some really bad family related news and I just needed time off to deal with that. So that's why there hasn't been a new episode in a couple of weeks. But having said that, I do want to thank Timmy Britt once again for being on our last episode If you haven't already done so, please be sure you go and check out Timmy's book on Amazon, Extraordinary Everyday Magic. I believe it's still $24.99 in the US and $30.99 in Canada. The price may have changed, but that's what it was last time I saw it. It is only available on Amazon right now. And if you can't find it on Amazon, just go to timmybrit.art and send Timmy and Catherine a message. Let them know you're interested in getting the book, but you can't find it, and they'll figure out a way to get you a book. And also, again, be sure to follow Timmy Britt on social medias. You can find him on Instagram and Facebook under Timmy Britt Studios. So just look for him there. He did have a Twitter at one point, but I don't think it's up and running at this point. So, But definitely Instagram and Facebook. And as far as our social medias go, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and we do have a TikTok. You can find us on Twitter at Ocho Ortiz Disney, Facebook, Facebook.com slash Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod, Instagram at Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod, and TikTok at Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod. You can also listen to the show on most major podcasts and platforms, including but not limited to Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, and our main source of uploading is Podbean, Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod.podbean.com. And if you want to help support the show, you can become our patron on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod. Or you can buy some merch, shop.spreadshirt.com slash Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod. And we do have a Teespring as well, but the URL has changed because Teespring has rebranded itself to just Spring. 
So I got to figure out what the URL is for our for our spring shop. And I will include that link in the description box below. Also, apologies if this video is lagging because it's lagging on my end. I don't know how that's going to turn out in the actual recording. It may be fine. Sometimes it lags on my end. And then when I go to edit it, it comes out fine in editing. But if it is lagging, I do apologize. With all that out of the way, like I said, this episode is going to be a top 10 list. So this is a top 10 things I've learned from doing the Disney podcast so far. Now, most of the things that are going to be included on this list come from two documentaries on Disney Plus, Howard, about the life of Howard Ashman, and Waking Sleep and Beauty, which is a documentary about the Renaissance period in Disney animation. And I highly recommend that you check those two documentaries out. And we have done podcast episodes covering and reviewing both of those documentaries. So you can check out our reviews of that as well. So most of the things I'll be discussing today are related to those two documents or related to or found in those two documentaries. And then there's a there then there's going to be some other things from other movies that we've covered so far. So without further ado, here is the top 10 things I've learned from doing a Disney podcast. Number 10, Eddie Murphy was almost cast in Cool Runnings. Not only Eddie Murphy, but Disney also reportedly wanted Denzel Washington, Wesley Snipes and Marlon Wayans to be a part of the film as well. This is according to IMDb, which is user edited. So take it for what you will. But reportedly, Disney wanted Denzel to play Dereese, Eddie Murphy to play Sanka, Snipes to play Yule Brenner, and Marlon Wayans to play Junior. Also according to IMDb, so again, take it for what you will, Denzel and Eddie Murphy allegedly turned down the roles of Dereese and, and Sanka due to the pay that they were offered. So. Again, IMDb, it may not be the most reliable source, but we almost had cool runnings with a cast of Eddie Murphy, Denzel Washington, Wesley Snipes, and Marlon Wayans. And I did bring that up when, when Josh and I covered cool runnings. And I don't know, man, I kind of really want to see <laughs> the alternate version of cool runnings where those four are cast as the main characters. Maybe that's just me. But I kind of really want to see how that movie would turn out. Number nine, an unmade Santa Claus Force storyline made it into Noel. A storyline from a draft script for Santa Claus 4, which was obviously never made, ended up being used briefly in a scene from the 2019 Anna Kendrick Christmas film, Noel. I'm citing IMDb once again here, so this may just be rumors and hearsay. But if you've watched the movie Noel, this seems to be accurate and add up. In one of the scenes of Noel, Noel gets taken to a psychiatric hospital for evaluation because she keeps telling everybody that her brother is Santa Claus and nobody believes her. During the evaluation, the doctor speaking to Noel tells her that she's treating two other patients who believe that they're the tooth fairy and mother nature. And if you've seen the Santa Claus movies, especially parts one and two, it's been a long time since I've watched part three and I've only seen it. One, I've only ever seen it once. 
So I can't really remember too much about part three other than Jack Frost is heavily involved in it. But if you watch parts one and two, you know, the Tooth Fairy and Mother Nature play somewhat significant roles. I mean, they are minor characters, but, you know, they do have a bit of significance to their to their roles in the films. So this one does seem to add up, even though, again, it is sourced from IMDb, so it may not be the most reliable. Number eight, Howard Ashman introduced the concept of want songs to Disney. We talked about this one when we reviewed the documentary Howard. We also created an entire podcast episode around the premise of want songs. So if you haven't listened to our review of Howard or our episode talking about want songs, I highly recommend that you do so. Essentially, a want song is a song sung by the leading character, which describes what that character wants, and it helps push the plot forward as the movie progresses towards the character getting what they want near the end of the film. Most people watching movies are so caught up watching the actual film, obviously, but once you know what a want song is and how to look for it, you can more easily piece together the plot and figure out how the, mo- how the movie is going to progress. Here are some clips from Howard and Wake and Sleep and Beauty discussing this a bit more. I guess it goes back to Three Penny Opera at the Theatre de Lee in, in the mid-50s. And then there's Dames at Sea, which I was trying to write the Dames at Sea of horror movies when I wrote Little Shop. Uh-huh. I was patterning myself after a, a very, uh, I don't know, a, a very succinct a form. Kind, kind, of, of form. kind of form and genre. Is, little little Shop of step? Horrors is very very, very deliberately a conventional American musical comedy. In fact, it's it's parodying American musical comedy. Uh The second number is the one where the girl sits on the trash can and sings about what she wants, like Eliza Doolittle did once upon a time. Howard sat down when he first got there and using The Little Mermaid, he literally taught us how to tell story with songs. I was interested just for myself in, in trying to give more specific information and yet keep it feeling like a ballad. Um, it's her dream. You're not going to miss what the film's about. That's the central issue of the entire film. And by having her sing it, it makes that point indelible. She wishes she were human. At the end, she will become human and live happily ever That's what she wants. What? What did he just say? <laughs> Your lead character needs a want. They have to have a strong want and then a want song. And you're going, okay. Not even having a clue about that stuff before Howard was around it. You would have thought we would have known that. In almost every musical ever written, there's a place, it's usually about the third song of the evening, sometimes it's the second, sometimes it's the fourth, but it's quite early, and the leading lady usually sits down on something, sometimes it's a tree stump in Brigadoon, sometimes it's um, under the pillars of Covent Garden in My Fair Lady, or it's a trash can in Little Shop of Horrors, but the leading lady sits down on something and sings about what she wants in life and the audience falls in love with her and then roots for her to get it for the rest of the night. Look at this stuff, isn't it? Number seven, Howard Ashman is the reason why Sebastian is Jamaican. Sticking with Howard Ashman here, and I'll be discussing him quite a bit during this episode, it was his idea to make Sebastian from The Little Mermaid Jamaican. The writers of the film had already created Sebastian and knew he was going to be a part of the film, but it was Howard who suggested that they make him Jamaican. People working on the film suspect it was because Howard had already written the songs for the film before he saw the the story and the script for the film, and that Howard made him Jamaican 
to fit the Caribbean style songs that he had already written. Again, here are clips from Howard and Wake and Sleep and Beauty discussing this. I had this character in the original treatment in the script. It was a crab character that was, was kind of, um, would be sort of look after the mermaid and try to keep her out of trouble and, and watch over. And he was kind of a crusty old the king's character right guy. who worked for the king and, and was like the conductor in the undersea world. Howard said, why not make him Jamaican? And um, our first reaction was, Jamaican? I mean, it was like a total twist on what we were thinking. Howard was involved really early in this project, and we went to New York, met with Howard, and he, just based on the treatment before a script was written, sort of did a placement kind of of songs, but I think he had practically written all the songs, you know, five minutes after he got the treatment, but... Rounds up all of these fish and all of this stuff to convince Ariel not to try to become human, and they more or less put on a show for her by playing all these instruments themselves. Okay, so here it starts. He starts establishing the rhythm. Clams pick it up and oysters and he's feeding on lobsters, whatever. There was electricity in the air. I mean, there was real genius at work, and people knew it. But that is a big mistake. Just look at the world around you, right here on the ocean floor. Such wonderful things around you. What more is you looking for? Number six. Beauty and the Beast was originally a more traditional, classical-style film. Beauty and the Beast was not originally going to be the musical style film that it became and that we know it as today. The original director, Richard Purdom, had a more classical story in mind. However, head of animation at the time, Jeffrey Katzenberg, didn't like the feel of the film and felt it wasn't working. Katzenberg brought Howard Ashman and Alan Menken onto the project, and Purdom left when it became clear that the story he wanted to create wasn't going to get made. Here's a quote from Wake and Sleep and Beauty talking about it. Beauty and the Beast was up next, and the budget and schedule were cut way, way back. We asked Richard Williams to direct the film, but Williams declined and recommended one of his protégés, Richard Purdom, to direct instead. Purdom was a very successful commercial director based in the UK. Yeah, and then the horse rises up right underneath him. Yeah. Now he's riding on... Yeah. Rear end of the horse hanging onto the yeah. horse's tail. Yeah. And one of the wolves grabs up right onto the tail, yanks the horse, and the horse rears up and throws the guy off, and the guy lands on the back of the, the wolf riding on the wolf. <laughs> it was my first job as producer, and I wanted to get everything just right. So I recruited a commando story team of Disney artists, and we moved to London to set to work on a non-musical version of the story. After about six months, we took the first 20 minutes of the film to screen for Jeffrey. Has my niece given you an answer? Um, not yet. I think she's playing the coquette with me. Forgive her. I knew it wasn't perfect, but what was the worst thing that could happen? I mean, they weren't going to scrap it and start over again. That would be just insane. It didn't work at all for us, so we literally scrapped it, and uh, the first 20 minutes of the movie and started all over again. Number five, Katzenberg almost killed the Lion King. Speaking of Jeffrey Katzenberg, he almost single-handedly ruined Lion King by demoralizing the crew working on it. Katzenberg hyped up another film that was being made at the same time as Lion King, Pocahontas, by saying that Pocahontas was going to be a home run and the better film of the two. 
Katzenberg had little faith in Lion King. And because of that, a lot of the animators working on Lion King left to go work on Pocahontas. Once again, here's a clip from Waking Sleeping Beauty discussing it further. I remember having seen a documentary called The Eternal Enemies, Lions and Hyenas. I mean, it was so incredibly powerful and dramatic and intense. And I thought, wow, if this movie could have capture, you know, a tenth of the, the power of this documentary, then it would be terrific. He's just saying hello. He's saying hello to you, by the way. Uh, he's, you notice that they are very contact-oriented. He just walked under this, this man's leg just then. And in this case, the yellow caution tape really does need caution. We've been working on it for a couple of months, and then Jeffrey calls a breakfast meeting. And in the meeting, we have the whole crew from Pocahontas and Lion King. And Jeffrey says, Pocahontas is a home run. It's West Side Story. It's Romeo and Juliet with, with American Indians. It's a, it's a hit. It's got a hit written all over it. Lion King, on the other hand, is kind of an experiment. We don't really know if anybody's going to really want to see it. And after that meeting, absolutely no one wanted to work on Lion King. No one had any faith in that movie, which, which is actually, if there's a lesson in the Lion King, <laughs> it's nobody knows nothing. Number four. The barbershop scene from Soul almost didn't happen. So even though we reviewed Soul back in January, this is something that I didn't discover until recently while watching Inside Pixar, a docuseries on Disney+. Plus. In the 2020 film Soul, there's a great scene where Joe, who at this time is controlled by the Soul of 22, goes to the barbershop to get his haircut before his big gig with Dorothea Williams. According to one of the writers, Kemp Powers, this scene wasn't originally in the film, and he wrote it in to give the film a more authentic African-American feel. Here's Kemp Powers from the docuseries Inside Pixar going into more detail about it. Writing on an animated film means having to come up with worlds and characters that feel real. When I started, the main character had already been developed to an extent, but he didn't feel real yet. We kept asking ourselves what was missing about Joe, and how do we make him feel authentically more African-American. At the same time that you're telling a story for everyone, you want to make sure that the people from these specific worlds see it as authentic. And I just wanted to recognize Joe as black. So there's a scene when Joe gets this big opportunity to perform, he gets a special suit to his gig suit. But as a black man, it didn't feel right to me that he would be getting ready for his big day and not also get his hair cut. Because based on the design that we had for Joe at the time, all I kept thinking was like, this guy needs a haircut because it's kind of looks a mess. He should be concerned about getting that hair fixed, even just lined up, as I say, like, um, like my hair's not lined up right now. So, you know, to be perfectly honest, I shouldn't even be on camera at the moment. So I was just looking at Joe's hair and it dawned on me, like, oh, the answer's like right in front of our face. Joe had to A, get his hair fixed, and B, enter a truly black space. And there's really no more authentic a black space in the community than a barbershop. So I just reached out to the director, Pete Doctor, on my own. I sent him an email in the middle of the night explaining how important it would be for him to get a haircut and how important it would be to see a black barbershop in this particular film. So he was like, why don't you just go ahead and write the scene and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of go from there. 
your barber in many cases is the person that you might have the longest continuing relationship with outside of your spouse or your children. <laughs> it's really hard to find a barber that you're comfortable with. So when you find your guy, you really, really do stick with them. Even if you feel like a small person and the world doesn't respect you or treat you right, in the barbershop, you have worth. Your opinion matters. When you're in the chair for that 20 minutes, you're king. So the barbershop scene, it came from this very personal place as a black man. But then it was my job as a screenwriter <laughs> to execute it in a way so that it makes sense. And it has to work from a structural standpoint and from an emotional standpoint. You say you tried. There was some resistance in the beginning to adding a new scene that would require a whole bunch of new characters and a new set. The question was, why do we need this? You know, everything about his appearance is taken care of in this sequence about the suit. But when we screened the first draft of the barbershop sequence internally, people locked in on it. Like, wow, that, that moment feels so real and authentic. And once they saw the benefit of that, it kind of opened the floodgates to adding authenticity to Joe's character throughout the entire film. Number three, part of your world was almost cut from The Little Mermaid. It's hard to believe, given what a great song it is, that part of your world was almost cut from The Little Mermaid. Our old friend Jeff Katzenberg once again didn't like how something felt, and he almost scrapped it. During test screenings for the movie, Katzenberg felt that the kids in the audience weren't responding to the song, and therefore it wasn't going to work for the film. Howard Ashman, as well as animators and other crew members, fought Katzenberg on removing this song. Eventually, the song stayed in the film and became a big hit. I'll bring you back to clips from Howard and Waking Sleeping Beauty to give you more details. It was the very first few days. I remember being incredibly nervous. He was such a perfectionist about a monologue that just happened to be put to pitch, which is what part of your world is. And, and what I did is I would get to the point after I do it like 25 or 30 times, I'd say, Howard, can you please just give me the line reading? If I can just imitate you. Ready to stand. Ready to stand. And ready to know what the people know. Uh, you were doing more voice than that. I think we wanted to make songs that would tell the story, songs that would really move the story forward, really push the plot along and keep things driving ahead. So it's not like you stop and sing a song. It's you get to a certain point where the crab has to convince uh, the mermaid not to go up uh, above the water and change her life. So he has to sing Under the Sea. Um, and she has to sing Part of Your World because she wants to go up to dry land so badly. And Kiss the Girl is a great example. Um, because if she doesn't, if the prince doesn't kiss the mermaid, the worst thing in the world is going to happen. She's going to, she's going to lose him and the whole, I don't want to give the plot away. But it's a, it's a real uh, tense situation and that's where the song comes. So they're always driving the plot. I remember uh, the Part of Your World song had animated and Jeffrey sat in the movie theater and 
And uh, afterwards, Jeffrey said, ah, we gotta cut that song. It's boring. We were um, previewing for school kids. And so, so, they, uh, so the, the kids during that screening, um, it was a lot of the movie was in black and white. And certainly part of your world was, I think a lot of it was in story sketches. And the movie comes up on its feet and we get to part of your world and it's just not connecting. The audience is restless. And It was natural that if you got to a slow song without a lot of imagery, guess what? Especially kids, they're going to wiggle, you know, and we were all trained wiggle detectors. You know, I said to everybody, I think you really ought to think about cutting that song out of a movie. And, you know, Howard Ashman said over my dead body, you know, I'll strangle you. Howard was very smart and said, look, these movies launch off this kind of a song. Every one of the movies had some version of it, whether it's When You Wish Upon a Star or whatever example you want to choose. It may be temporarily kind of hard to make work, but in the big picture, you have to have this song. You have to have those earned heart moments. You know, so we had lots of battles about it. Um, and ultimately he was right. And not only did it stay in the movie, but one of the more memorable moments in the movie. Number two, Rescuers Down Under was the first fully computer animated film. Not only was Rescuers Down Under the first fully computer animated film, but it was also Disney's first collaboration with Pixar Animation. Ultimately, the film failed at the box office, but it paved the way for the future of animation, as well as the future of Disney's relationship with Pixar. Here's a clip from Waking Sleeping Beauty. Jeffrey and Michael started focusing on Ooh, if we have more titles, it'll be better financially. And I always fought for, can you take some of those resources and put them back into the business? Which was where CAPS came from. CAPS being the computer animation post-production system. One of the technology guys, Lem Davis, thought we could use computers to paint the characters in our films and digitally assemble all the artwork. Roy went to Frank Wells with a proposal to spend $10 million on a computer system that might not return a dime, but would revolutionize the look of our films. So I just walked down the hall and stood there in Frank's doorway. Frank looks up and he says, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm just here to make sure you sign that check, Frank. Frank's check was handed to Alvy Ray Smith, the co-founder of a small computer graphics firm that experimented with character animation and made Listerine commercials on the side to make ends meet. It was called Pixar. The CAPS computer was thrown into production on Rescuers Down Under. It was uncharted territory. The crew from Disney and Pixar worked around the clock, sleeping on pallets, nursing those computers with duct tape and chewing gum, and the deadlines and quotas never stopped. No, you don't want to hear my thoughts. You don't want to hear my thoughts. What I remember most of that period was feeling so brokenhearted that we had attempted to make a feature film using the CAP system before anyone had even made a short with it. We had never tested the system before we committed to a release date to make a movie. Three o'clock in the morning, Peter Schneider walks in and walks and looks over at me and goes, well, is it working yet? Is it working yet? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't need this pressure. My first film, Rescue Is Down Under, came out. Phone rings at like eight in the morning. Mike, yeah. Jeffrey, yeah. So uh, what's going on, what's the numbers? He said, uh, made five million, it's over. Oh, excuse me, what? It's over, forget it, move on. Jeffrey pulled all the TV advertising. Rescuers was the very first digital movie produced in Hollywood. And without it, we would never have achieved what would come later. Number one. Songs from Aladdin were written while Howard Ashman was dying. 
Songs from both Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast were being worked on while lyricist Howard Ashman was in the hospital dying from AIDS. Some songs from Aladdin were even composed on Howard's deathbed. Composer Alan Menken mentioned that he and Howard worked on Prince Ali while Howard was in the hospital. Sadly, Howard passed away while Beauty and the Beast was in post-production and before Aladdin was fully completed. Tim Rice was brought in to finish working on the songs for Aladdin with Alan Menken. Here's a very emotional clip from Howard talking about this. By that time, and I don't know if it's just because the illness was so beating him down, he got gentler, I remember. He was pretty feisty in the beginning, and I'm sure it's because of all of his anger at having to have this stupid disease, you know, and to know that there wasn't really any cure, so... It was the whole anger of, damn it, he's just hitting his stride and the stupid disease is going to just cut him short. We were so in the middle of working that, and those last sessions on beauty, even before we were really deep into Latin, we were holding the phone up to Howard in the hospital. I mean, that's pretty heavy stuff. We were writing things on hospital beds. I wrote Prince Ali, I, I hauled a keyboard to St. Vincent's. And we wrote it, you know, literally on his hospital bed. I remember first watching the documentary Howard and hearing that for the very first time, hearing Alan Menken discussing the fact that Prince Ali, this wonderful, amazing, upbeat song was written in the hospital while Howard Ashman was unfortunately dying from AIDS. Like that was just a gut punch to my system when I heard that. And it's changed my entire perspective on the music from, from Aladdin, knowing that a lot of these upbeat songs that were written by Howard Ashman were written by him towards the end of his life. It's just, it's really, I like, I really don't have words to explain how emotional that made me when I first heard it. And I still get emotional about it now. It's, it's incredible that he was still working at that stage in his life and writing such amazing songs. And I know that was a sad fact to end on, but it truly is the most shocking and fascinating thing that I've learned from doing this podcast. I also know a lot of the things on this list come from the documentaries Howard and Waking Sleeping Beauty, as I said at the beginning, but those are both fantastic documentaries full of wonderful information. And I definitely highly recommend watching both if you have a Disney Plus account. As Josh and I get back into doing the podcast on a more consistent basis, I do look forward to seeing what other fascinating things we will learn about Disney and Disney films. I'm also going to be interested to see how long this video stays up on, on YouTube if you're watching the video portion of this podcast. Due to all the clips that I'm using, I am using the clips under fair use, but that obviously isn't going to stop YouTube from putting copyright strikes on them. So if you are watching this on YouTube and it does get taken down, you can listen to the audio portion of this podcast. And again, you can find us on most major podcasts and platforms. We are available on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, and our main source of uploading is Podbean, Ocho Entertees, DisneyPod.Podbean.com. Once again, you can find us on social medias as well. Twitter at Ocho Ortiz Disney. Facebook, facebook.com slash Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod. 
Instagram at Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod, TikTok Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod. And if you'd like to help support us by becoming a patron on our Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod. And again, merch available at shop.spreadshirt.com slash Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod or on spring. And again, I do have to find the URL for our spring page, but I will have that linked in, in the description box down below. Again, I would like to apologize for the delay in this podcast coming out. Like I said, at the beginning, there was some family stuff that came up and I just really didn't feel like doing podcast stuff while that was going on. But Josh and I are going to try to bring you more content on a more consistent basis. And having said that, whether you're listening or watching this in the morning, the afternoon, the evening, whatever time of day it is, where you are, when you're watching or listening to this, we thank you for watching or listening. We appreciate you watching or listening. And we'll talk to you again very, very soon. Bye-bye.